0: may be seated and if you'll turn with me to the book of Revelation if you're visiting with us um, my name is Paul Joyner I'm the senior pastor here and we are working our way through the book of Revelation Revelation chapter 2 if you um, aren't familiar with the Bible we've printed this for you on page 8 of your worship guide as you're turning there just a couple of uh, quick announcements Uh, we will not have uh, corporate prayer tonight we do that weekly Um, over Zoom. We will not have that tonight. I'm going to take this week off. Um, Students, high school students, if you are entering ninth grade next year, so if you're a rising ninth grader, um, through graduating seniors, uh, we do an annual uh, trip um, down to the beach for summer conference. Um, So you should have gotten an email, your parents should have gotten an email this week about signing up for that. I will send out another one. Uh, But I want you to put that on your radar. Um, We are still planning for that July uh, 5th through the 9th. Um, All right, Uh, Revelation chapter 2, starting with verse 1, reading through verse 7. This is God's word. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is God's word. Would you pray with me as we ask his blessing on his word preached? Lord, this is what we want. We want you to speak to us with power. You're the king on this throne, the lamb pierced for our sins and from your mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword and with it would you cut us and then heal us for where your gospel goes out it brings new life or hardens hearts but it never returns to you void without accomplishing all that you intend for it to accomplish and so this is our cry today make our hearts come alive to your grace We pray this in your name. Amen. Have you seen who's going to that church? Social media has seemed to make this question more important. It's probably always been around in a celebrity and trans culture like ours. Cool people make churches cool too, or so it seems. You remember a few years ago the campaign that took celebrities and put them in chairs and The theme of it was, I am second. I am second, although the irony was that they were, of course, the focus of the video. Have you seen who's going to that church? That's John's point as he begins these letters to these seven churches. And for that answer, we have to go back to the end of chapter 1. This is what John describes. This is who is in the midst of the church that makes the church glorious, worthy of your presence. As he describes Jesus in Revelation chapter 1 verse 13. In the midst of the churches, called lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest, The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. And in his right hand he held the seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the one sun, shining in full strength. That's much better news than a celebrity visiting Celebrities might make us cool, but we need God in our midst to redeem us with his power. We need Jesus, the risen Savior who is crucified for sins because the enemies that we face are not a lack of hipness, but a deeper powerlessness over sin, Satan, and death. This is the one that we should celebrate. We do celebrate as the one in our midst. It gives us hope. What's going on as we enter into chapter 2 of Revelation is that under the direction of Jesus, John is writing letters to seven churches in Asia Minor, what is today Western Turkey. And the first profound truth that John reminds us of as he transitions from the end of chapter 1 into these seven letters is that Jesus is with his church. We can take that truth for granted, but if you take that truth for granted and remove it from the equation, then what we do when we gather together is absolutely both meaningless and powerless. Jesus is here. Kind of to get the richness of that image as the one who walks amongst his lampstands, we really have to go back in the Bible One of the things that I've said as an interpretive grid for understanding the book of Revelation is that it is a deeply biblical book. It is the end of the story. God bringing all these themes from the rest of the Bible together. The strands all knit together. And if you can't really understand the book of Revelation unless you go all the way back, one of the ways I say this is don't get your eschatology, your theology of end times Right, from the one of the most confusing chapters of one of the most confusing books in the Bible. Get your eschatology from the rest of the Bible and then apply it to the book of Revelation. You could say that about just any theme of theology. Revelation is the culmination of all of those themes. And one of the great themes of the Bible is God with us. In fact, that's the heart the end of the gospel it's what makes jesus's presence such a great reality this is the theme that it it kind of knits to make us most alive what is one who is most alive one who has god's presence in their lives and who is walking with god the story starts this way the beauty of the original creation the thing that made the garden of eden the most beautiful place on the earth was not its external beauty but that god was there in the midst of his people and then adam sinned and all of humanity was cast out of god's presence and put under the condemnation of sin and the defile the internal defilement of sin and so instead of flourishing under the presence of God and under His love, we're now condemned out of His presence and under the curse of sin and wrath. But God, those are the best words in the Bible, but God, God would not let sin and condemnation reign, and instead of His people being away from Him, He knits together the body of Jesus and then crucifies it so that God, who is holy, 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 could once again be with his people, so that once again we could flourish in his presence. And so when we were introduced here in the book of Revelation to Jesus as the one who walks among the golden lampstands, we are taken very purposely back to the garden. See, those lampstands were shaped like little trees. They were They were the imagery that were in the tabernacle and the temple, and they were shaped like little trees with blossoms on them, up from which came a wick that was lit. And we're to be reminded that this was when Jesus is walking amongst the lampstands. It's an image of the garden restored. God in the midst of his people. And when God is at peace with his people and walking in their midst, then humans flourish. There is no other place for, for flourishing than when we are at peace with God and he is with us. And that's the description of the church here in Ephesus. The words of him, verse 1, who holds the seven stars and who mocks among the seven golden lampstands. God the Son with his people. Because the church is the beginning of the new creation. It's signs that God is redeeming. And that's probably why these letters are addressed To the angels of the churches. Now, angels can mean messenger. That's the most obvious translation of the Greek word for angels. But throughout the book of Revelation, the angels typically means angelic beings. So it could either mean that Jesus is writing to the messenger of the churches, the pastor, or. He's actually writing this to be delivered by angelic beings. And again, throughout the Bible, as we said last week, the angelic beings are the servants and warriors of God who exist in the heavenly realm, who are gathered around His throne, singing His praises day and night. There are a few times in the Bible we get the curtain pulled back to see a reality beyond the material world, a reality beyond what we can see, taste, and touch. And what we see is just that, the angels surrounding God's throne And in the book of Revelation, we see this, where the saints have gone before us, the elders and the angels are gathered around the throne of God. And it seems that what John is doing is reminding the people who belong to these churches that you belong to a reality that is greater than the one that you can see. The angels remind the church That we are already part of the heavenly realm. And the work that is being carried out, though cannot be seen, is just as real as what can be seen, tasted, and touched. And now Jesus, He's the one seated at the right hand, surrounded by the angels and the saints who have gone before us. And as Paul reminds the church in Colossae, You're one with Jesus. He's been raised and seated at the right hand. He's reigning over all things in the heavenly places. And you too with him. You see, you could say it this way. Jesus is here with us. But maybe the better way to say it As though we sit on earth, we are there with Jesus. And since Jesus is with his church, or his church is better said, with him, he also has things to say to his church. These are seven letters to seven churches. And we've said this before, the church is the center of God's plan of redemption in the world. It's the only institution that makes it into the new creation. And because of that, Jesus loves his bride. He loves his people and is committed to them making it to the end. And so he addresses these letters to these seven churches. Notice here that there's a pattern. If you're taking notes, there's really six parts to each of these letters. And throughout the next seven weeks, we're going to look at each of these letters. There's a command to write to the angel. That's the first component. Then Jesus is presented uniquely to that particular church. We're going to look at that in a second. There's a commendation of good works. There's a condemnation, a call to repentance, a new obedience, an exhortation to actually hear this message. Don't let it just slip off your ears. Pay attention. And then it ends with a promise to the conquerors. And we'll look at that in just a second, too. But notice first in these steps that as Jesus walks with his churches, he notices things about his church because He loves her. He's the one who walks among and notices because there's an intimate relationship with his bride. And that should encourage us. Where a call to repentance is also a promise held out because he knows us. And it's it's like a good mother who knows what each of his children need. One child might need an exhortation and be dealt with sternly. One child might need to be encouraged because they are more tender-hearted. But one who notices her children knows what each of those children need particularly. And this is Jesus walking amongst his churches. Each has a different personality. Each has different strengths and weaknesses. None are full and and complete, yet he, he knows them. He knows us. There's there's such an intimate connection between a particular local church and the king who sits on his throne that he is aware. But notice, secondly, the the logic of the gospel that's present here. Because he holds out not not just things that need to be repented of, but things that need to be commended in them. But at the end, there's always a hold a call. Remember this promise. This isn't on your shoulders. Many think of Christianity as a set of rules to be obeyed, right? And when not obeyed, then God turns into a finger-wagger who condemns. You need to listen up and do the right things, but that's not Jesus. He knows the heart of his people with such intimacy, and he knows that fear or threats alone do not motivate us. But hope and grace and love and promises do. And so instead of just recognizing the faults and calling them out, he addresses them, confronts them, and then holds out the hope of the gospel to lead us to the repentance that's necessary. He holds out redemptive love. And so instead of hearing the logic of Christianity being Stop doing the wrong things. Start doing the right things or God's going to get you. We need to hear the logic of the gospel this way. Because God loves you, repent. And return to Him. Because God is going to carry you to the end. And also notice how these function as circulator letters. Look at verse 7. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. These seven churches that he writes to are actual churches, but then also act as representatives. This is that all of the churches Jesus needs to address in these ways. We all need to hear these admonitions and encouragements. He writes to one church, but all are supposed to hear what he's saying to them. Children, sometimes you overhear what your parents say to one of your brothers and sisters, and you may think to yourself, I need to pay attention to that. It's often the second child that flies under the radar, right? Because they watch what the first child does and get in trouble, and they make mental note. I don't think I need to be doing that. And this is what Jesus is doing as he's writing to the angels of these seven churches. He's saying to everyone, listen up, these are things that you should be concerned about. And so he writes here to the church of Ephesus. Some background on the church of Ephesus. The church of Ephesus was planted by the apostle Paul about 40 years prior to this. That timing's important because we'll see um, in a sec they'd lost their first love. And in those 40 years, there had been a slow decline. The second generation had come around. This had been the church in Ephesus had been Paul's home base for three years during one of his missionary journeys. That's the longest he stayed in any area. It had become such a significant church in the area. In one of the most significant cities that we're told that the Apostle John, who writes this book took up home base in Ephesus at the end of his life. 1st and 2nd Timothy are written to Timothy in Ephesus as the pastor of that church that Paul handed over to him. It was a prominent church. But this significant church had significant problems that Jesus needed to address and it should come up on your radar as we've been talking that there is no perfect church. Jesus has things to say to all of these churches. I've often had conversations with people that have started out this way. Do you know what's wrong with your church? And as a pastor, in my mind, I'm thinking, yeah, probably what you're going to critique and a few other things. But that goes against the the gospel in some ways, to think that there is an ideal church out there because the heart of the gospel is God saves sinners. The church is not the hero. Jesus is the hero. There is no church without flaws. There is only churches, true churches, that are flawed who know they're flawed. And those flaws point to the sufficiency of Jesus. It's at times like that when I hear that question, do you know what's wrong with the church? I think, yes, but do you know what's most true about the church? Jesus is here and he loves us. The church isn't the hero. Jesus is the hero and the church is where he gathers his broken people together to work on us and therefore to display his grace to the rest of the world. You've probably had friends whose critique of the church is you're just a bunch of hypocrites. And I always wanna challenge that and say, man, I, I think what you mean is we're just a bunch of sinners who don't have our act together. That's not hypocrisy, that's at the heart of the gospel. That's what makes the Jesus beautiful is he takes people like us. Now, if you mean by that, that by the, the church is a bunch of hypocrites is that we pretend we're better than we are? And I'd say, I welcome that critique and Jesus shares it with you. The gospel gives us the freedom to put those things down. And so if your expectation is that the church should be without flaws, you're going to be deeply disappointed. If you've been visiting Zion and you're looking for a church without flaws, um, let me ask, let me beg you, give up that look. Quit looking for that place because it's not a home for you. Because a church without flaws is not a church that Jesus inhabits. But hear the voice of Jesus I walk amongst the lampstands. And because he walks amongst the lampstands, he walks with redemptive power. And therefore, he's changing his church. And so there are things that he commends. Verse 2. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. And then there's a second commendation in verse 3. I know... Again, hear that language, I know, I've I've looked at you, I know these things. These things are tremendous, I want to commend you. I'm so proud of you for these things. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. And these two kind of go together. These aren't two separate commendations. He's commending one thing in them. They have a zeal for truth which you would expect from a church that Paul planted, Timothy pastored, and then John showed up on later in life. And he's commending them. We need to have a zeal to preserve doctrinal purity in the church. Jesus loves that. The church stands or falls on the truth of God's Word, and the deeper we sink our roots into the fertile soil of truth, the firm, more firmly will stand, individually, corporately, whatever. That is always true. False teachers are always and will always be a real threat. False doctrine will destroy a church. When the church waters down doctrine, it loses the anchor that plants us firmly in Jesus. But doctrinal purity is not a standalone sign of health. And so Jesus says to them, Look, I'm walking amongst you. I've noticed some beautiful things about you. You love truth. I notice how hard you've been working on this. I notice that you're guarding the good deposit. It's been costly to you to do that. Because there can't be health without healthy doctrine. But there can be healthy doctrine without health. Verse 4. But I have this against you. You've abandoned the love that you had at first. And the warning is that Jesus will remove the lampstand from them. He's going to remove his presence. The light of his countenance The joy and power of having him with him. He's going to take that away unless they repent. Serious. But repent of what? Repent of being so inward focused that they've ceased to bring the light of the lampstand into the darkness of the world. They fought for the purity of the truth. But their hearts have grown so cold that they don't long for others to know the Jesus that the Bible tells us about. They fought for for truth, but they're not using the truth to bring light into a dark world. Few of us, few of us run the risk of quickly ending up there usually a slow slide. We lose our zeal for others to know the glory of the gospel that we're trying to preserve so carefully. I remember Tim Keller made this point when he it stuck for me for years when once he was asked about the success of Redeemer Presbyterian in New York City. There are a lot of good churches in New York City today, but at the time when he planted Redeemer, there were very few gospel-centered churches churches in the city and they saw quick success almost immediately and when they asked him what was the secret to your success this is what he said we just saw a lot of conversions early on and newly converted people love to tell others about jesus that's the heart of the first love do you remember that love that you had at first when you were new when you had newly become a Christian? It's the kind of love when you, you first fell in love with your wife or your husband and you wanted to tell everybody about them. Let me tell you, your friends are like, I just wish they quit talking about this person they're dating. But There's just so many amazing things. I can't believe they, I'm in a relationship with them. I can't believe they would love me. This is so, so amazing. That's the love you had at first. When you first found Jesus because he first found you, Jesus say, if you lose that, I'm going to, rem- I'm going to remove the lampstand from you. And it's a dangerous, slow slide to that place to lose the love that you had at first. Again, none of us wake up one morning and be like, well, here I am, I did it. It's a slow slide. And I think it takes one of two paths. The first is, I'll call the yeah, ya yeah path. And the second is the ya yeah, but path. The yeah yeah path. That's the that's the path of indifference. It's the path of sort of nominal Christianity, where the gospel has ceased to excite you. You're looking for the next rush, the next thing. But there is no next thing besides the gospel. There is only because the gospel is the best thing. It has to be the central thing and the sufficient thing. That's why Paul can say, "I desired." to know nothing amongst you but Christ Jesus and Him crucified. Yeah, yeah, I get that. But there's got to be something more. Something more than the gospel. There is something deeper in the gospel that we need to explore the truths of, but there is not something better than the gospel. There's no more than. The gospel is sufficient. And when the Spirit cuts your heart, and so overly overwhelms us with the sense of the filth of our sin, our hopelessness over it, the profound depths of our rebellion against God's love, then the gospel is the most beautiful thing. Perhaps we lose our first love because we've put up so many barriers to that work of the Holy Spirit convicting us of our sin that we run away. Or we get entranced with other things or the pleasures of this world just take us away and our heart becomes so hard that we're like, yeah, yeah, but. But there's another slide. There's another path towards that. If The first one's the path of indifference. The other is the fraternal twin to yeah, yeah. And it goes like this, yeah, but. And this one I think is a little more subtle. And probably what had showed up in the church in Ephesus. Because this path looks like false zeal. That something begins to compete with equal passion for the gospel of Jesus Christ. It goes like this Yeah, the gospel, but what about? What about social justice? What about race relations? What about worship styles? What about these programs? What about politics? All extremely important things. Things that the Bible should care... uh, that Christians should care about... that the Bible does speak to. But to a degree, it happens when those things... subtly become equally important with the gospel. Yeah, but what about? And when they do, that happens is it subtly crowds out the center where Jesus stands alone as the redeemer of sinners. None of us intend yeah, yeah, or yeah, but, but the slide slowly happens. And when anything competes for more importance to me, to us, than the work of Jesus and his grace to save Hell-bound sinners who are absolutely hopeless against the indwelling power of sin, the external threat of the evil one, and the pressures of the world to conform. These are not minor dangers. These are dangers that will cause Jesus to remove the lampstand. Verse 5, remember, therefore. Now, again, Revelation is a deeply biblical book. And when you hear remember in the Bible, it's not remember simply because you forgot. It is remember to keep this central and remember God's redeeming work. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, And do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. This is the kind of grace that is in Jesus. It's not over, he says. You've fallen. You see, condemnation, this is the way it works. Condemnation, this is where condemnation and repentance feel so different. Condemnation makes you want to give up, repentance makes you see the grace of jesus and says well i did it again but i'm gonna get up and try because jesus is with me he's not gonna reject me he's gonna embrace me and see that's the key to keeping the first love first to nurture through repentance to see these two dangers are exactly what keep us from experiencing the love of the Savior that keeps us alive. And the reason it just so inflamed us at the beginning is because you say, oh man, I'm not worthy of that kind of love. I wasn't worthy then, and I'm not worthy now. We can easily use, and this is the other danger of these two, we can easily use yeah, yeah, and yeah, but to keep Jesus at a distance to keep him at arm's length, to keep him manageable and safe and ourselves safe from him because it's it's sort of unsettling to give him the power to be at the center and to see our need for him. But to see our need for him inflames our hearts with joy. Let me encourage you with this. If you have found, if you're like, this is resonating with me. I have lost my first love. Go out and share the gospel with somebody who needs it. I have a friend who says of this about pastors. Most pastors burn out because they stop spending time with non-Christians. That resonates, and I think it's true of every single Christian. And then watch somebody's heart come alive. They may not believe Jesus, but they'll say, that's the most unbelievable thing I've ever heard. If If that's true, that's the most unbelievable thing I've ever heard. And you think to yourself, Yeah, it is. Repentance is unto life because it moves us right back into the love of Jesus and the suffering of the cross. Keeps it center. There's no safer place to be more fully alive than under the conviction of the Holy Spirit who cuts us in order to lead us to Jesus and His amazing grace and His profound love. Remember how far you've fallen. Jesus tells, I'll close with this, Jesus gets invited over to dinner at a house of a yeah but guy, a Pharisee. And they're eating. And while they're eating, a woman comes in, most likely a prostitute. And she starts weeping. And her tears fall at the feet of Jesus. And as she wets His feet with her hair and she wipes them away. The yeah, but guy says to her, don't you know who that is? If you did, you wouldn't have anything to do with her. You see, she only comes to Jesus with her sins. And her heart is alive because Jesus is beautiful to her in her hopelessness and despair. And then Jesus says to the yeah, but Simon... You gave me no kiss when I came into your house, but from the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed my feet with her tears and ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins are forgiven, which are many, many, but they're no match for my grace and mercy. They're no match for my blood shed on the cross and because she has been forgiven she has been loved much many sins leads to much forgiveness which leads to much love but he was friend forgiven of little loves little and he says to her your sins are forgiven go in peace enjoy my peace enjoy my rest enjoy my presence Enjoy what was lost in the garden is restored to you. For your sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. And so that same one then says, Don't lose your first love, but let it grow deeper. Verse 7 To the one who conquers in this way, who conquers unbelief and indifference, I will grant. Eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray. Lord, don't remove your lampstand from us and don't let us grow cold. We would pray for revival. I know how easy it is to become indifferent. My heart goes there so often, so I would pray for my own heart. Restore and revive and refresh again with the sufficiency of your grace towards us as sinners. And Lord, we pray, we would beg you to give us conversions in our own community to reignite loves that might grow cold. Please guard the center that your gospel might be deep for all our needs, sufficient for all our sins, and enough for all of our concerns. Take this table, these ordinary elements, set them aside and use them for the extraordinary end of keeping your gospel center in our hearts and reigniting a first love. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.